Genesis chapter 1. I have been so looking forward to preaching the book of Genesis. And I've been so looking forward to preaching Genesis chapter 1. Because it has caused my heart to soar at the thought of the God that creates. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Saints, there is no more profound beginning of any book in anything that has ever been penned than this beginning. The opening verse of the opening book of the revelation of the reality of the creator of all things is just that. It's the revelation of the reality of the creator of all things. There are those that look to Genesis to prove creation. There are those that look to Genesis to try and date creation or to prove the existence of God or disprove the existence of God. But Genesis wasn't written or given to us for any of these reasons. If you look to Genesis for a how answer, how did things begin? You're going to be disappointed. If you look to Genesis for a when answer, once again, you're going to be disappointed. And if you look to Genesis for a why answer, you may very well come away disappointed as well. Because Genesis was written for those that come searching for the who of life. Who created all of this? Who is the one that can do the unthinkable, that can create ex nihilo, out of nothing, something, everything? Genesis, especially the first three chapters of Genesis, have been given us to make sense of this thing that we call life. And to do that, to make sense of life, you have to understand the meaning of life. And the opening verse does just that. It gives us the why of life. In the beginning, God. God is the reason for life. He's the reason for all life. He's the meaning to life, the essence of life, the value in life. Outside of God, there is no life. And without God, there is no life. And this applies to even those that are alive. Those that live, but who are under the wrath. And God is knowable. He's not the God that the Stoics or the Greeks envisioned, standing outside of his creation, observing it, just like we might an ant colony. He's actively intimately involved with his creation and he's knowable and he created the world the universe after his character complex intricate beautiful even frightening and everywhere that we look we see beauty where there's no need for beauty the birds in the air don't need to be created with such beauty the sunrise, the sunset does not need to explode with radiating colors. 
the contrast between the earth, the water, and the sky. They don't need to be stunning. And yet, they all are. And they are because they reflect the one who created them. He made them stunning in their beauty because they reflect him. And God desires us to know him. He has condescended to his creation. And we think the condensation of Christ coming to the world as a human was a huge leap down for him, and it was. But the condensation of God in giving us this book to tell us of his creation, of himself, and the state, the reality of himself in terms that us finite created beings can understand is no less a condensation. God desires us to know him in terms that we can understand. That's why so often in the Bible we're told of the finger of God, the arm of God, the breath of God, the jealousy of God. He uses anthropomorphic language to describe himself. And these are just merely shadows of the reality of who he is. But they give us the opportunity to understand the awesome reality of the God that created all things. And God created all things for a reason. And we must first understand this to understand God. The creation of the heavens and the earth were not a side note in the life of God. They weren't a hobby for him. It wasn't something he just enjoyed to do on a Sunday afternoon. I think I'll create a heavens and an earth. That sounds like something I might enjoy. He specifically created this heaven and this earth for a specific reason. And once you understand this, then you will never be confused about things such as sin, the fall of man, the covenants of God, the coming of Christ, and even the end of the age. And that he began the account of himself, which this Bible is, within the beginning, is given so that we know that there is a beginning. You see, we humans, we can only relate to everything around us in a spatial manner. There's no other animal that does this. Most animals are aware of night and day, and they act on the God-given natural instincts that they have. But it's only man who knows morning, noon, night. And we speak of time. We speak of events within time. Time is used as the means of how we know ourselves in human history. Without time, we're nothing more than an amoeba. That has, li that has life, but has no meaning, no awareness. But because of time, we can hope. Because of time, we can dream. Because of time, we can plan. And because of time, we can know God and the faithfulness of God in our life. And God began the account of himself within the beginning telling us of the establishment of time and to tell us that there is an end. That the first sentence begins 
the first, I'm sorry, the first sentence of the first book of the Bible begins with, in the beginning, is give us a cause us to think about the end. If the beginning is this, what's the end going to be? Everything that God has created has a beginning and an end. Only God is outside of that reality. And we are meant to understand that before he said, let there be light, he had the end already mapped out, already planned out, already worked out. We need to understand this truth in order that we can understand creation and then recreation. And the clearest understanding that God had the end in mind before he began comes from Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. There it says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times there is not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird from prey, of the prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. And even more clearly, he says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 65, verse 17. Again, in the beginning, God, God, the creator, the God who is noble and desires us, his creation, to know him. And that word for God there in the Hebrew is not Yahweh. It's Elohim. Yahweh does not mean God. Yahweh is the name of God. And that's not told to us until we get to chapter 2, verse 4. The Hebrew word that is used here and rendered to us as God is Elohim. And there are three Hebrew terms for God, El, Eloah, and Elohim. And Elohim is by far the most common of these, being used over 2,500 times in the Old Testament. And it's a plural word. And it's often used to refer to pagan gods, such as in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. There it says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the Elohim of God, of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. But in that verse, you can see how God separates himself from all others. They are regarded as gods by men, but they are not Yahweh. Only he is Yahweh. And as it aside, don't use this verse to try and prove the Trinity. There's no theological evidence that it was ever meant for that reason. And for this reason, you shouldn't try to tr use it as proof of the Trinity. But there is the reality of the Trinity given, spoken of in this creation account. As we go through it, see if you can identify it as we read through this chapter. And it's not an accident the Elohim is used here instead of Yahweh. And the reason that it is used ties in with the reason for creation, the reason that all things are, instead of there being nothing. To properly understand Genesis, we must read it as it was given us, 
as the author, the original author, intended us to read it, we are given this creation account for us to view it from God down and not man up. Every day of the creation account speaks to the reason for the creation account. Each one leads us along further and further in the account and reveals more of the purpose that there is something and not nothing. Day one, verse two through five. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Already, though, before we get to verse 2, the universe was in place. The basic building blocks for all things were already created. And the earth, the stage upon which God would perform his greatest act, was in place. And in verse 2, we are told of that third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God. And more often than not, when we read verse 2, when we read about the earth being without form and void, the darkness was over the face of the deep, we think that at this point that it was under the rule of the evil one, that it was outside of God, that it was even maybe anti-God. But that isn't how we're supposed to understand the creation of God at this point. It is his creation. He not only stands outside of it, directing and forming it, but he specifically was hovering over it. And it was completely in his control. Nothing ever happened within his creation that, he, that was not of him. When we read verse 2, we should in our minds think of a great play or a masterpiece of a movie that begins in darkness. But within that darkness, there's something. Something that catches our attention. Something that's amazing, important awe-inspiring. That's how we're supposed to read verse 2. And as you may not know this, but historically, there's a controversy between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis 1. You see, verse 1 of Genesis 1 is a complete statement. Verse 1 is the complete telling of the creation week. We don't need the rest of those verses. There's no addition needed to it. All had happened, all creation happened in that one verse. And that we're given anything more than that one verse is the condensation of God to his creation. He wasn't required to tell us anything more for us to desire to worship and adore him. But he desires us to know him. He gives us the rest of the chapter one for one reason in order that we can know the God that created us and rules over us. And then in verse 2, he begins to tell us about himself and the reality of the creation week. We are given verse 2. And herein lies the controversy. You see, there's some that claim that Satan fell between verses 1 and 2. That the 
The first heavens and the earth were polluted long before the six days of creation. That the creation week actually began tainted already by the fall of Satan and the casting out of one-third of the angels. They, they say this. They make this claim because of verse 1 and then verse 2. And this thought makes a pretty good storyline. It ties up very neatly for our human minds the understanding of when did Lucifer fall. It at least gives us a human understanding of when that first created being or that created being called Lucifer, when he fell after convincing a third of the angels to try a coup against God. But what it also does when we do that is it takes the account of the creation of all things and it interrupts it. It changes it. And when we view creation in this way, when we hold that God created everything, verse 1, and then all the rest of the verses in chapter 1 are the telling of him, fixing the mess that happened after the surprise of Lucifer rebelling and trying the coup of heaven, which brought evil and sin to the universe, rendering it formless and void in darkness. This is what we're told happens when, in the gap theory, which is what this thinking is called. When we hold to the gap theory, we are saying that God will not recreate heaven and earth and return them to an original state when he returns for that final time. We are, in fact, saying that he's going to have to re recreate the heavens and the earth. And we lose sight of the reason for the creation of something instead of nothing. We need to remember the reason that God has given us Genesis. More than that, we need to be clear about why God created instead of not creating. And that reason is found in the last verse of chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. You see, if you don't get this straight now, if you're not clear about the why of creation, here in this first chapter, in these beginning verses, then you're going to be unclear as we move through this historical account of the drama of God as it unfolds within Scripture. So why did God create instead of not create? Why? Was he lonely? Was he lacking? Bored? What's your answer to this question? What your answer is to this basic question is the foundation of your faith. You need to get this into your head now. You need to understand that this is truth, that this is reality. Your belief, your understanding of this seemingly simple question is the bedrock on which your God is built. If you say that God created because he desired man, he was really looking forward to those evening walks spent with Adam and Eve. If that's your thinking, then you have a God-centered man. I'm sorry, a man-centered God. He's not complete within himself. He needs us. 
which then makes perfect sense of this God sending his son to earth to try his very best to convince as many people as he could to be reconciled to him. He wants to get as many as he can get to come to him so that he won't be lonely. And this is not the God of the Bible. This is the God of the modern evangelical movement that says that humans must have free will, that God is a respecter of man. So let me ask you again, why did God create instead of not create? Was he lonely? Was he lacking? Maybe bored? What's your answer to this question? You have to have one. But you're going to notice, if you look at verse 1, which is the complete telling of the creation week, that there is only one thing that is emphasized there. It isn't the lights. It's not the water, the birds, or the animals, and it's not humans. Those are all spoken of in the retelling of the creation week. In verse 1, there is only one emphasis. God. God created. God created everything. And God is the reason for creation, not man. He did not create the heavens and the universe in order that man could be created. That's putting the cart before the horse. That's emphasizing the canvas instead of the painting. That's emphasizing the painting instead of the painter. The unpopular truth of God is that he is not God for man. He is God for God. He says of himself, for Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, Deuteronomy 10, 10, 17. And he says, I am Yahweh, that's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols, Isaiah 42, 8. And he says, I am Yahweh and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Deal with that, humans. <laughs> I am Yahweh who does all these things. Isaiah 45, 6 through 7. And in chapter 38 of the book of Job, we are told of the time that God once again condescended to speak to one of his created beings. One that was truly his. One that thought much too much of himself, though. He, God, in chapter 38, begins to ask Job some basic questions. Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? The first thing I want you to notice is God doesn't condescend to appear to Job in human form. He speaks to him from a created natural occurrence used supernaturally. And the thing that he tells Job is this. He tells Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. What God is telling Job is to man up, be a man, be the best of humanity, the best that every man could ever have been. What he is telling Job is 
step in the place of Adam. You, Job, you be that, the best of humanity. And in that, with that, I will then separate myself apart from you with just a single question asked over and over and over again for three chapters. And that question, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God never once apologized to his creation, to Job, for the killing of those humans that were his children. He never once asked forgiveness for the loss of all the possessions of Job. He never tried to explain to Job that what had occurred to him was unfortunate. I'm sorry, dude, you're just the unintended victim of a a disagreement between Satan and me. He just asked Job, Where were you before I said, let there be light? And for Job, this servant of of God, who was his servant, for Job, the realization of who God is and that God is for God alone was enough for him. After being made aware of the vast gulf that stands between the creator and himself, Job, one that has actual value because he was created in the image of God. He made this confession to the creator. Then Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things so that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's verses 1 and 2 of, of Job 42. And then Job recounts all the foolish things that he had demanded of God in verses 3 and 4. He said, he remembers when he said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. He actually said those things. And then he confesses the reality that he had been made aware of in verses 5 and 6. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. All 30 verses of Genesis 1. Every one of the verses that follow verse 1 of this chapter are given us in order that we can do more than just hear of God with our hearing. They're given to us so that we can see God just as clearly as Job did, even though God didn't appear to him in anything but a whirlwind. It was the telling of this creation week that made Job see God for who he is and understand that God is for God, not for man. But God did create the heavens and the earth. Perfect. The perfect habitation for his perfect creation. The best of his best. Humans. And he did give us the account of his creation, the account of himself. And as we progress through the retelling of the creation account in verses 2 through 31, this account is broken up six times in verse 5, and then again in verse 8, and in verse 13, and verse 19, and then verse 31. And and each of these days of creation, we are given more and more revelation of the reason of creation. 
And in verse 3, we're told, God said, let there be light. Now, for the unregenerate, when they read through Genesis 1, they're going to scoff at the creation week. They're going to say, this can't be accurate or true. They're, they're the ones that are quick to point out that it isn't until day four that God creates the sun, moon, and stars. Once again, we need to get, our, get this through our heads, that this account is not an answer as to how of all creation, but an answer as to why and even who. And God, through the Apostle Paul, spoke of the unregenerate and their scoffing at this account in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. He said there, Therefore, having this, mi- this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, and we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with the word of God. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your slaves, For Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But this is day one. And we are already being given hints, indications that there's more here that meets the eye. The light of day one wasn't the sun any more than the light of recreation is the sun. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, we're told, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And for us to rightly understand this creation week, we need to understand that prior to day four, there was no human understanding of days. God instituted the concept of the 24-hour period and called it a day on day four. But day is not dependent on creation. It just defines creation. It explains creation. It hints at the reason for creation. And in each of the days of creation, there is a separation. In day one, there's a separation between light and darkness. And then we're told of the separation between water on water on day two. In day three, we're told of the separation between land and water. Day four, we're told of the separation between day and night. Day five brought the separation between the creation of those that, the things that lived in the air and those things that lived in the sea. And then day six brought the separation between humans and all animals. And on every day, we're told, and God saw that it was good with the exception of day two. There, we're just told that he has separated the water from the water, and it was so. There's a couple of schools of thought as to why this is. The first school says that God actually didn't do any creating on day two. He already had created the waters and just separated them. That's why he didn't judge that as being good on day two. But that doesn't answer why he didn't see that what he had separated as being good. The second thought comes from scriptures, though. 
scriptures given to us in the book of Revelation tied in with the Gospels. The thought is that the separation for the, was for the confinement of the demons and for Lucifer. In Revelation 21.1, we're told, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You guys have heard this before, right? I used to loathe this thinking, man, I love the ocean. There's not going to be an ocean. There's not going to be any lakes. What does that mean? There's not going to be any seas. No more water. But before that, in Revelation 7, verse 17, we're told, For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every way, every tear from their eyes. And then after that verse, we're told, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's Revelation 22, 1 through 2. <clears throat> so perhaps there is water in the new heavens and the new earth. But what are we to make of that statement about there being no more sea? Well, there are a couple of verses in the Gospels that hint at what it might mean. And again, this is just might. I'm not saying this is. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, Jesus tells us, When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds that house and puts it in order. That's verses 25 and 26. And previously in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Luke, we're told of Jesus casting legion out of the man outside of Decapolis. You know that story, verses 31 through 33. And at the end of it, Decapolis, or uh, legion, begged him not to command them and depart them into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, into the water, and they drowned. The demons headed for water again. Perhaps, and this is just a perhaps. The separation on day two between water and water wasn't seen as good by God because the separation was, the perp was for the purpose of the future entrapment of the captiv and captivity of the demons. We aren't told why God didn't see day two as good. We can speculate. But outside of the clear evidence of Scripture, we must submit to Scripture and lay claim to Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to Yahweh, our God, but those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So for whatever the reason, God was still the creator, and he was the reason for day two. And then day three brings life. The plants and the vegetation, they were created on day three. And they were given a command by their creator, reproduce in your kind. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. Day four brings the sun, the moon, the stars. And they too were given a command to function perform in exacting order to bring about seasons, signs, day and night. And they obeyed, and God saw that it was good. And day five brings the creation of animals, 
birds of the air, fish of the sea, and each were given a command by their creator, and they obeyed, and God saw that it was good. But on day five, there's something new added to the creation narrative. Look at verse 22. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. We are told that to the animals of the creation, God not only gives them commands, but he blesses them by telling them to be fruitful and multiply. So now we're told something new about this God, this Elohim. He's not only a creative being, but he's a blessing being. And he values life. And then on day six, we're told even more about this God who created the heavens and the earth. Beginning in verse 24, we read, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the air according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kind, and everything that creeps on the, the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God told the earth to bring forth all living things. Just like he told the earth to bring forth all living plants in verse 11. Just like he told the waters and the air to bring forth the fish and the birds in verse 20. He is a creating God. He created everything there is out of nothing. And then he used that which he created as the building block for the rest of the things that he was going to create. And then in the midst of the sixth day, in the midst of that creation week, a week that is given us for a specific reason, we see something new happening. Not new like a new aspect of creation, or new like a new sun, or a new, or a new moon, or a new bird, or a new fish. We see God specifically do more than just command his creation to create. Beginning in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all creeping things that creeps on the earth. And then verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In verse 26, we're told that God made. In verse 27, we're told that he created. Those two words are used interchangeably, are meant to mean the same thing. And as I said earlier, it wouldn't be biblically correct to imply that because Elohim is in the plural, that this means that it's given in reference to the Trinity. But as I said earlier about the purpose of the, creative, of the creation week, it's given us to reveal more and more concerning the one that is referred to as Elohim. And as we come to the sixth day, we're told even more about this Elohim. Something more than he is just a creating God. More than he is just a blessing God. Now we're told that he's an intimate God. He, literally, as we're told in chapter 2, takes a hand in the final created being. And there's a lot of the uh, theology found within these two verses. And in them, we do see the triune nature of God. Not just being hinted at, but revealed. 
And we're not only allowed to peek into the reality of the Trinity, to this aspect of the deity that is God, but we are also given insight into the mind and character of God. In verse 26, the word our there is in the plural form. And it's there and only three other times throughout the whole entirety of the Old Testament that God uses a plural word when he speaks of himself. The second time occurs in Genesis 3, verse 22. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. There's that plural. In knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Did you note the use of not only the title of God, Elohim, there, but also the name God, Yahweh, being used? And when you read the following verses after that text, you should see another striking similarity to Genesis 1 verses. There, It says, therefore Yahweh God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out at the east end of the garden of Eden and placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that that turned every way to guard the tree, the way to the tree of life. God speaks of himself in verse 22. And there's a second speaking of himself in verse 23. And then a third speaking of himself in verse 24. And the same thing occurs in verse 27 of chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then the third time that God uses the plural word when speaking of himself is also found in in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. There he says, come. Let us, again, that plural word, go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And we shouldn't be surprised that there, too, the verses that follow this one also contain three repetitions of God. Verses 8 and 9. So Yahweh dispersed them from the face of the earth, of all the earth, and they left the city, the building of the city. Therefore, the name is called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth. And from there, Yahweh dispersed them over the face of the earth. And then the fourth and final time that we see that a plural word used as a descriptor of God is found in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. There we read, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Plural. And it's in this fourth and final rendering of a plural word in context of the divine conversation of God with God that we're brought into the reality of that which is not good within creation. The fallen separation of man. In the end of verse 8, we hear Isaiah answering the God that created him. And the conversation between this God and Isaiah. Isaiah said, here I am, send me. And God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eye or their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And here's the response by Isaiah to God. Verse 11. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and Yahweh removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. 
And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. This was the response by this triune God to his slave Isaiah. No quarter. No slacking. No remorse. But he, this God, ended the reality of humanity with hope. He ended telling Isaiah of the destruction of the people that he had called as his own with hope. In the last sentence found in verse 13 of Isaiah 6, of Isaiah 6 he says, The holy seed is its stump. You see, it's not biblically correct to assume that the plural word of verse 26 could be or is meant to be understood by the original audience as a picture of the Trinity. When Moses wrote this, he didn't see this as the Trinity. We're not meant to understand that they actually thought that. Any more than it's biblically correct for us to think that the original audience was to understand who was the hope of reconciliation with God that he promised them. The Bible, like this Genesis account, is a constant, ongoing revelation of the reality of God to humanity. And he uses his creation and the dailiness of our lives to reveal to us more clearly, more fully, the reality of who he is, the depths of his goodness, the vastness of his righteousness. You didn't know God fully when you were first saved, did you? It's been the ongoing revelation that he has used his creation to show you of his faithfulness and his goodness. He gives us his living and powerful word for the same reason. Verses 28 and 31 through 31 of Genesis 1. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Verse 1 is a standalone verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The rest of chapter 30, of, uh, the rest of the 31 verses of chapter 1 is nothing more than a retelling of verse 1. As God, Elohim, begins to reveal to his creation the reality of who he is and the why of his creation. What is that reason? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the, li and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 1-5. God created everything in order that we 
that, that, that we would glorify in him, that he would be glorified through the revelation of his character, of his love, of his grace, of his majesty, even his wrath and his love. God is a reason that he created. But, but you're thinking, well, that's not right, because we're told that this is a true and trustworthy saying that it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost, 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ said that. But Christ also said of himself, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John 6.38. And I can do nothing of my own initiative as I hear I judge and as my judgment is just um, because I don't do or seek my own will, but him who sent me, who um, his will, John 5.30. And on the eve of his passion, Jesus made known the reason for all creation. There, on that day, he cried out, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And you're thinking, see, doesn't that prove he came? He came to save us? Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. John 12, 27 and 28. Saints, we must ensure that we get this truth down. That we make it. That we cause it to be drilled into the bedrock of our faith. God did not create us. For us. He created us for him. The sun, the stars, the moon, the plants, the animals, and even the elements are all creation. They all obey him. And they do this not just because he's Elohim, but that is reason enough. They obey him because he is Yahweh. And they rejoice, the elements, the elemental things rejoice to know him. That they have been created by him, for him. This is the reality that is told to us in the Gospels. When Jesus tells those that would desire that God not receive glory, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, these, these people were silent, the very stones would cry out, Luke 19, 14. And this is why we're told in Psalm 148, praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh from the heavens. It starts there. Praise him from the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you, heavest highens, high, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh. For they were commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. You gave a decree and it shall not pass away. And then it goes down. Praise Yahweh from the earth, you great sea creatures and all depths, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, 
kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers on the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise Yahweh. Saints, I implore you, glory in the majesty, glory in the wonder, the brilliance, the radiance of the holiness of God. Elohim, who created everything that we see, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Saints, contemplate the wonder, the majesty, the radiant beauty of Elohim, who would create you. That's reason enough for you to praise him. But he did even more than that. He did more than just create you. He recreated you. The first time you were made from nothing. The second time you were recreated from a dead, carnal being into and through his spirit and son. Saints, behold your God the God who is the beginning, who is still God all the way to the end, and who is God every second in between. Let's pray.